G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Ardeet. Today is Tuesday the 23rd of January 2024. Still feels weird, 2024. Our topics this week are farmers are calling for supermarkets to be broken up and Australia is going to commence domestic missile manufacture. Of course, we have our two ticks town talk, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our date, and we're going to finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But as always, before we get into all of that, let's catch up in this last week. Our date, G'day, what's been going on with you? G'day, DK. Uh, what's been going for? I went uh, a few days ago to a uh, no lights, no lycra dance uh, thing with the the wife. She had um, spotted this a while ago, and apparently it's a thing. And apparently, well, everything that starts with apparently, you should you should automatically doubt. You know, someone's written something <laughs> down and said apparently this is happening. Your first thing should be there's a flag. Yeah, uh, that goes up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my understanding uh, is that this concept was uh, was in Stra- Australian. Uh, it certainly took off in Australia and pushed by Australia. I'm quite happy to be corrected on that. Essentially, uh, you have a, a room or a location. There's a there's some mob who coordinates with people who want to run this. And you have a, a, a room where the lights are all turned out. Uh, it's almost almost dark. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of um, light from sort of the, the covered exit sign and uh, you put sort of screens over the door. And the idea is that you're essentially just dancing in the dark, which takes away a whole lot of that uh, dancing to be, to be seen or uh, sort of self-consciousness uh about having getting up and having a, a bit of a a boogie uh yeah your eyes adjust to the light as they they do and you can sort of yeah you can you can see people around you but it's all very uh all very low key and it, because everyone's sort of not particularly concerned about oh how do i look to you know, somebody across the dance floor or how am i looking is you know does my outfit look all right because you know, everyone just came in casual gear whatever they they wanted Everybody's just there, just wanting to have a yeah, a bit of a, a dance. It goes for an, like it's limited to an hour. It's all very sort of like starts at starts at seven, goes for an hour, finishes at eight. Um, lights are off. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was <laughs> it was a good activity. So much so that we'll be uh, going back next month when they have it on. And yeah, it was a. Sort of a fair range of age group, probably skewed towards the you know the thirty to to sixty range as a as a, a skew. Um, the most of them being the thirty to forty five, I would guess. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I thought it was an interesting idea and it was a a fun thing to do. So yeah. I don't know yeah. if you've heard of that, have you? No. No, I haven't heard of that. And it is a kind of an interesting concept because I guess there are a lot of people that are quite sort of self-conscious about dancing or just 
you know, just kind of want to, would enjoy it a lot more if they didn't have the pressure of thinking that people might be watching them or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, people can definitely psych themselves out. So I actually like that idea. I've never heard of it before, but it, yeah, it sounds pretty good. I'm, I'm one of those people that will selflessly dance anyway. Like it doesn't. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I'm not generally too self-conscious. I can't dance to save my life, but no, I, no, I enjoy no, it. Can you know? I? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I sort of enjoy it enough that I kind of just get over it. But I know that's not the case for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, no, I'm yeah. all for that. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was. It was good. Um, and also, we had the. Uh, after talking about donkeys, I think a couple things back i can't remember if i'd mentioned to you that we've now got two miniature the new neighbors just across the the road i've got two miniature donkeys what it looks like he's got a little toupee on louie uh, but yes yeah. yeah, so get sometimes you're sort of sitting there and you hear this it sounds like someone's screaming out at first and then it turns into this uh this donkey bray i mean they're not big but bloody hell, it's like they got a, got a got a megaphone. And look, it's fun to hear. It's another one of those animal sounds to hear you hear around you. But they're they're pretty cute. I mean, they've got about probably from, how do you measure how do you measure horses and things like that? You measure it up to the shoulder, don't you? I think so. Yeah, with with hands. Are they measure donkeys and hands. I don't know. Oh god, oh, for, oh, no idea in hands. But if you went up to where they're their shoulder is it's probably only about you know um 80 centimeters maybe oh, right. maybe so they are very little maybe okay. a meter uh, and then they've got the head and neck um above yeah. that which you know throws another you know 60 centimeters on top of of that yeah yeah they're not they're not very big but they're they're funny funny little um funny little animals just funny to hear them actually uh, give a, a a bray across the way so yeah, that's I look, cool. that's, that's what's been taking up my week. What about you? Uh, this week was the first day of school. Um, what which class is... are you in now? It... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, it was a big deal for myself because my youngest has just started uh, prep. Uh, and so they're at school full-time this year. So it was sort of... Just clarify uh, for a non-parent, uh, prep is what? Prep is the first grade, like, we don't call it grade one because, I don't know why, but it's the first time that they start school, essentially. They're so is the, it kindy? Kindergarten? It's, it's, it's above kindy, but before proper school. I feel like at a point they were separate institutions, but now it's all just part of the school. Um. And I guess it's in a way it's kind of like grade one, but we just we have a grade one as well, so I don't know. Um, but they're all like five year old kids going to school for the first time. Oh, uh, okay, and, five years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and um, they're all super cute with their bags on that are <laughs> way too big for them to carry, um, you know, and all of that. Yeah. So it was sort of it, it's bittersweet in a way because it's great to see your kids growing up and becoming you know little people but at the same time it's like oh my kids aren't that little anymore so it, it's a bit of a roller coaster i guess on the first yeah. day um and yeah i don't know that was 
it's been raining a lot up here. There's another cyclone just off the coast of Queensland at the moment, uh, which we I shouldn't be impacted by, hopefully, touch wood. Uh, but we're getting a lot of rain at the moment. So the lead up to the last week of school holidays was uh, a lot of basically stuck inside activities and a lot of all three kids stressing about school (laughs) coming up this week. So (laughs) I'm very glad that it's finally happened. We can rip that Band-Aid off. Everyone's kind of relaxing now, uh, back into the regular routine and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, uh, and how was it? Um, uh, how was it compared to your uh, first one? Was it easier, harder, or? Um, I would say easier. I think my daughter is a lot who, who just started prep. I think she's a lot more um, ready than than the boys were. I think uh-huh. she's just. I don't want to say more mature because it's not really the right word, but she's just just definitely more. Um, mentally ready, you know, they do say girls grow up faster than boys. And I feel like that's very true, <laughs> actually. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, sh- she can do a lot of things and she's very confident as well, which definitely sort of adds all of that into there. Whereas the boys were a lot more sort of nervous on the first day and stuff like that. I think it's just, it's a bit of a, you know, different people do things differently. Um you know, relating it back to to the disco in the dark. My mm. daughter would very much be a person that probably wouldn't go to something like that because she wouldn't like that other people can't see her. Whereas, <laughs> whereas my boys would probably prefer the dancing in the dark sort of thing. So they're just they're different That's people, funny. you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now, before we kick off properly, I did just want to. Uh, do a little quick follow-up to a story that we spoke about last November, uh, and that was Golden Visas, or the 888 Visa. Uh, it As of yesterday, it's been suspended. So a quick reminder, this visa required a minimum investment of $5 million in Australia in exchange for automatic permanent residency. Unlike other visas, the holder holders of the investors uh, weren't required to actually learn to speak English and they actually had no age limit on coming in. So as we spoke about it last year, we both agreed that it probably wasn't the best way. It, it certainly had its time and place in the past uh, and it was time to, to give it a scrap. And we did actually appeal to uh, our number one fan, uh, Anthony Albanese, who is a regular listener of the show. Uh, yes. And clearly... He got the message. So, Albert, you're welcome for that one. Um, and as of yesterday, no more. So that's good. Well, well yeah. I'll, I'll, when I find the um, episode that that's in, hopefully I can find it. If if I find it without too much hassle, I'll put it into the um, I'll put it into the show links. So when you get the when you'll find when you download the podcast. We have a quote on all our sources and things that we think might be interesting, like if we mention a picture or something. So uh, I'll find that. I'll get that sorted out for your listeners. Yeah, it is our episode from the 7th of November, 2023. Oh, I should have just asked you, 7th of November. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, let's move on to our actual topic. We've got to break them up. 
says a farming group supermarkets are using market power to distort prices. Farming groups have accused the major major supermarkets, the major major supermarkets, of of using their power to distort the market, leading to elevated prices for shoppers and low prices for producers. The claim comes amid falling global prices for agricultural goods that have failed to dent the grocery bills and growing scrutiny of supermarket pricing practices through newly announced federal and state parliamentary inquiries. Xavier Martin, the president of New South Wales Farmers Association, said that the food retailing market was not functioning properly and that the major supermarket chains were too big. He said, we need to have mandated rules of fairness. There's no doubt more equitable and fair pricing would work well all round, but these unfair trading practices distort the market. Coles and Woolworths dominate Australia's supermarket sector with a combined control of two-thirds of the market, with Aldi being the next biggest with just over 10%. As a reminder, Aldi is a German supermarket chain. There have been revitalized political interest in supermarket practices coinciding with furious criticism by farmers that falling produce prices last year did not result in comparable price cuts for their products on the supermarket shelves. I'll tell you what, if I was a farmer and I was growing, I don't know, bananas or something, and knowing how much the supermarkets were buying them from me, and I went to this local supermarket, and that price that was listed did not reflect the price that they were purchasing from me, I would be very upset. So I I get this. I, I get where they're coming from. Yep. Farming groups, Ag Force, and the National Farmers Federation have also expressed concerns at supermarket pricing decisions and what they say is a widening gap between wholesale and shelf prices. The country's major grocery retailers have defended their pricing decisions and say that they are committed to helping Australians with the cost of living price pressures. A Coles spokesperson said that the supermarket was working hard to keep prices affordable. They said, and I quote, There are many factors which determine both the retail shelf price of produce and meat and how long an item is on promotion. A Woolworths spokesperson said sale yard prices don't reflect the reality of the company's supply chain which is super vague. The UN (laughs) Food Price Index, which measures global prices in agricultural goods, ended last year about 10% lower than 2022 levels, led by falling costs for meat, dairy, cereals, and vegetable oils. However, Australia's food inflation is running at an annual rate of 4.8%. However, the figure represents the price prices charged by grocery retailers and not the wholesale price of food, giving it is derived from supermarket scanner data. The food, the major chains are now facing several investigations, including an upcoming Senate inquiry, which we will almost certainly cover, and separately a Queensland parliamentary inquiry. Former Labor Minister Craig Emerson is also leading a review of the grocery Sorry, the Grocery Conduct Code, which governs how the food retailers deal with suppliers and customers. 
The Queensland Premier, Stephen Miles, said on Friday that the supermarkets had agreed to share more pricing information with the state and that information would be made public, declaring that transparency and scrutiny were the first steps to help farmers and consumers. Farming groups have also called for an investigation by the competition regulator to test whether the sector is operating as a competitive industry should. I welcome that last part, that investigation by basically the ACCC, the Australian Competition Regulator, uh, to look into the supermarket. As we said, you know, we do have a duopoly, basically. Um, And... I think it's time that we seriously look at this um, because global food prices have dropped so much. We know this. But I feel like this is a bit more of a complicated issue in that when we saw and we we sort of spoke about this uh, last year uh, around... Uh, when was it? it was in October we spoke about the potential of freezing the price or the greens the, the greens party were talking about oh, yeah. freezing the yep. price of food and we did at the time we sort of defended both Coles and Woolies uh, our major supermarket chains by saying that their margins are generally pretty low and I feel like that still holds true however I think that there's probably a lot more going on behind the scenes than we aren't really necessarily seeing. Um, I think it's quite convenient that they do say that their margins are really low. They both posted reasonable profits, but considering how big their businesses are, you'd expect it to be higher than that. But these, these, both of these companies operate more than just supermarkets. So as a company, an overall company, you know, uh, it's not to say that they're not funneling money elsewhere to, to, to show that their their profits aren't as high. I don't know. I just think I think there's more that's going on and a bit of transparency, uh, as Queensland Premier Stephen Miles said, transparency and scrutiny uh, are a good thing. And if we, everyone at the moment is yelling about and jumping up and down about the price of groceries and food in this country uh, and the, the cost of living pressures that that brings on, everyone's got to eat, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, if these companies are so sure that they're doing the right thing, show us. What do you got to hide? Lay your cards on the table. Oh, that's a, you know, oh, that's <laughs> an interesting way to put it. Look, I'm, I'm with you on the the transparency. I was was thinking about how you could you could go with this and uh, look. I suppose there's commercial there's commercial issues, uh, but I tend to lean towards transparency being as uh, being part of the solution. Look. On, on principle, no surprise to hear that I'm against government interference, like breaking up supermarkets. You know, I think private business in a free market gets to rise and fall as they they may. That's what I have as a principle. But the problem is, this is not a free market. It's got a lot of the elements of of one, but it has been corrupted by government, which includes. Uh, the effect of, of lobbyists from the, the supermarket. So my biggest my biggest uh, one on why I, I view it as corrupted is the uh, rules and regulations that are put into place, often suggested by lobbyists or agreed to by self-interested representatives of these larger companies, and those rules and regulations that are easily absorbed by larger corporations but make it difficult for their smaller 
competitors. You know, it's it's an age-old game of using government to abuse your competitor. If you've got a, a large, uh, like say if you've got a large legal or HR section, it doesn't really matter if there's another, you know, 10 pages of regulations for your employers. But if you're running a small business where, you know, essentially you're the accountant and the bookkeeper and the HR, then it sometimes becomes an overwhelming workload. So that to me is one of the the ways in which the market is turned away from being less of a free market and more, uh, I use the word corrupted in, t- in terms of uh, it not being free. Uh, and we also saw, in my opinion, uh, preferential treatment during the pandemic and I know there's without sort of having to litigate the whole pandemic thing the bottom line is supermarkets like Coles and Woolworths were able to stay open uh your local fruit and veg stores and smaller ones weren't able to yes and you know that all graded on me on the time and I know there's a whole lot of arguments and things so um if you want to, if you want to get into the arguments with have a look at the have a look at the uh get yeah, call call me uh or like mention me in the the subreddit when i post this episode but uh i my opinion is they got preferential treatment so that close working relationship with government tends to work my against my definition of them being a purely private business and that makes me more open to the argument of breaking them up, I can start to see some um, some merit in those arguments. Now, unfortunately, when I hear the comments, uh, such as one from Xavier Martin, the uh, uh, God, I forgot what his uh, who was he from? Xavier Martin. He was one of the spokesmen. Um, he was from just the. Miss- President of the New South Wales Farmers Association. Thank you. Hear from him, when I hear a comment from him saying, we need to have mandated rules of fairness, that just sends a shiver down my spine. I understand the, uh, the, the principle of it, but mandated rules of fairness, I just can't see much good coming over that, coming out of that. Uh, of course, yeah, yeah. we got to remember that Mr. Martin represents yeah. the Farmers Association um, and wants to get the best price for his members and customers who are the farmers. So, um, and and you know, being a farmer these day and age, it's not it's not well. I guess it's never been easy work, no. um, and so I can understand where he's coming from. Um, yeah, I, I do get that. Yeah, I, I do get the uh, – I, I can probably get where both of them are coming from. Uh, it's just – unfortunately, unfortunately, it seems like whichever way you go from, the bureaucrats uh, tend to, to win. And I'm also concerned when the bureaucrats point at somebody else when the crowds with the pitchfork appear beneath their, their balcony. It always just makes me a little bit suspicious. It doesn't exonerate uh, Coles and Woolies. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of noise being made to ensure that people who are understandably pissed off about the increase in grocery prices have got someone to to demonise other than the, other than the government. 
Of course. So yeah, look, it's it's very I don't know, it's very complex. Uh, which is an understatement. Like, how would you do it? What do, what do you reckon? What would what would the practical steps be? How how do you do it small, or how you how do you 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 test it? What what do you think? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think wow, you've really put me on the spot here. I think what what you should do is start. With look, I don't think breaking the the breaking them up is a good idea, um, but I do think maybe limiting their expansion is probably a better way to do it. Uh, right. Both of these companies got super big by often buying other smaller supermarket chains in the past, and I think that's probably the wrong thing to do uh, moving forward. These companies are big enough as they are. They've already got – they've gobbled up two-thirds of the market, I don't think, allowing them to, to you know, continue to expand through uh, uh, sort of, you know uh, – Taking over other companies is a good idea because there are a number of independent retailers, uh, you know, independent uh, supermarkets in Australia from you know yep. more small convenience stores type stuff like FoodWorks and and uh, in in Queensland and I'm, I think they're in New South Wales too. They have um, Spa. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of others, um, but of course IGAs are yep. all over IGA. the country. Yep. <clears throat> the Indi- Independent Grocer uh, Association. Or independent grocers of Australia, or something like that. Um, they are all over the country. Some of them are, I think, some of them are part of bigger um, corporate groups, and some of them are independently owned. So, yeah. um, I would like to think some of them would maybe expand. But oh, I'm sure there are other more regional, uh, smaller you know, grocer chains around the country. Yep. There's probably a lot that I don't know of. Um, but I do think probably one of the transparent, one of the ways you could do like transparency is by picking a number of food staples and publishing, ah, yeah. publishing the wholesale price against the average price of the major retailers. And don't be specific to... Um, you know, and this can be a regulator thing. They can have a website that you go and have a look at. I, I, I know they do this with fuel. Yeah, that's an they, interesting idea. Yeah, they go because the fuel regular uh, the fuel prices are so highly regulated in Australia. If you go to the pump, um, or if you look online, you can find out where all of the fuel prices are every day, and they have to report it. So you can be assured that you know the price before you even go to that fuel station. Um, it's mandatory reporting across the country. So, you know, there's already in, – in other retail industries, there's already this sort of thing that exists. So I don't know why they couldn't do the same thing with, with a handful of products. So say like two liters of milk or uh, uh, 500 grams of butter. Uh, yep. You know, the other staples are a bit kind of tricky because it's kind of like – you know, you go flour and sugar are, are really cheap anyway. So you probably don't, you know, you know, it's it's what sugar's two dollars something for two kilos. Like it's cheaper, but yeah. but probably more like some basic uh, mints, perhaps. You know, uh, yep. half, half a kilo of mints, uh, and then basically have a website or something like that where they can you can go on, you can have a look and be like, oh cool we've the government is basically doing the legwork so that you know if you're getting ripped off or not 
I think that's an easy way oh, to that's do it. That's an inter- oh, interesting idea. And just make it a mandatory reporting thing. So the government agency doesn't even have to go out and do it. The grocery stores have to report it themselves, which they already know what those prices are because they bloody print leaflets and drop them <laughs> off in your letterbox. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, 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 I'm saying we go that one step further and go, what was the wholesale price? What did the supermarket chain pay for that? And this will have an effect where, I can see that they will drop the price in some of those things so that they look like the good guy. So this Mm. may have the unintended effect of actually bringing some of these staple food items prices down, but you'll probably see other non-advertised food items prices go up, maybe, um, to sort of balance it all out. But I would rather have really cheap staple food items like vegetables, are generally fairly cheap fresh veg mm. um but meat is very volatile that the price of meat yeah. swings all over the place at the moment um and things like butter and milk and things like that so it would be pretty good i think to have a small sample of items and some staple items that are constantly you know had a look at to see what what the uh, the prices are doing and whether or not it's fair I like that. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. There we go. Solved it once again. There, the, we, uh, there we go, Albo. We're doing uh, doing all your your work for you. Well, um, yeah. If you can feel free to put us on as consultants, uh, I feel like we're giving away some good ideas for nothing here. Um, yeah, I had also thought too is if you are like if you are talking about the actual breaking up. Of things, rather than uh, go through a whole lot of the, um, the the whole details of it, because I, I sort of think, well, how can you test these things for sort of limited amount of times, etc.? Is I'm wondering whether you could essentially break uh, break them up into uh, like the uh, butchery, baker, general. Um, groceries and fruit and veg and just put up like ethical walls between the departments in the companies look they they used to be called chinese walls obviously they've the names changed for that but uh ethical walls i believe is the the current term so that you are actually just able to measure the success and the um <laughs> Lack of ethical side of those different of those different departments and the the different the different streams. So you could you could maybe test that in a, a state, but given how big they are, it might may have to be a short term Australia wide test. And if you're looking at them reporting as if they're separate companies. That gives you a feel for what the effect of actually breaking up the company may be, because it could be that if it doesn't produce any effect at all, well, then maybe breaking it up is not the solution. But it may also highlight where some of the issues are, because you then actually get intra-company competition, and each of those areas gets to treat themselves as though they've already been broken up. I thought that could be another another one to throw in there, but I do like your one. Yeah, I actually I don't mind that. Um, 
breaking them up into their components because I know for a fact that they've been trying to get pharmacies into the stores for quite yeah. a number of years and that's never uh look as a consumer I can definitely see the benefit to me to to get you know uh, put put the script in and that but at the same time I also see the massive disadvantage that has to you know the the small uh well actually I think a lot of pharmacies now are uh part of bigger groups but uh, the, I think it's the Pharmacy Guild of Australia or the Pharmacy Union or, or what, whatever it's called has really never has lobbied so successful that so successfully, but that so that's never happened. But generally yeah. speaking, you know, there's quite often a pharmacy very close to your supermarket, sort of for their convenience anyway. So I don't see why um, they couldn't just start to break up these these grocery stores here in Queensland. We're not allowed to have the alcohol inside the supermarket, the bottle shop has to be a separate entity. Um, yep. So well, with hey, a lot- when, you, when you say a separate entity, it's its own store? has to be its own store. Entrances can't be linked. So right. out of, outside a lot of them uh, will be a separate bottle shop. So for Woolies, uh, it's BWS, which is their bottle shop brand, uh, and it'll be just outside, like part of the same building, um, sometimes shares internal walls with the supermarket, but yep. you can't go from the supermarket into the bottle shop uh, like you can in other states. Um, and when I was younger, that kind of annoyed me because I felt like it was an inconvenience. But now that I'm older, I feel like having that those degrees of separation is, is a good thing. Um, and yeah. I don't see why, you know, taking the butcher and stuff out of the supermarket kind of... You know, maybe we'll have some of this effect. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a it's not a simple uh, it's not a simple answer. Um, but you also can't you also can't deny just uh, how you can't deny what is happening with the uh, consumer and what is happening with the the farmer. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you know Coles and Woolies are evil but there's not really a strong case to say that you know they're they're all saintly and looking after everybody's interests no and i don't think i don't feel like they are i think that's the angle that they're using um i think really where this comes from is more a case of hey we know that you bought it from us for this price and you're selling it for this price you should buy it from us from a higher price and not change your price on the shelves. Yeah. I feel like that's where it's more coming from. Like the the farmers association feels like they've the farmers themselves have had a bit of a raw deal, um, and Coles and Woolies are pocketing the difference. Now, I do yes. understand running a major supermarket like this must be a logistical nightmare, and I'm sure they have huge warehouses full of stock that maybe will sit there for weeks to months and things like that. So I'm sure there's sort of like a lag in, obviously fresh produce is a little bit different, but there's probably a lag in the purchasing of of uh, produce and, and products to the actual seeing those products on the shelves and i don't i have no idea how long that lag is it could be days it could be hours it could be months i have no idea um but 
I definitely feel like Coles and Woolies probably like they're going to defend their position tooth and nail because they're massive businesses and that's what they do. Um, But I feel like the fairest way to do this is basically just shine the spotlight on them and just make it transparent. This is, this is where it's at. And look at the end of the day, the consumer, the market is going to be driven by the customer. Um, And as we say, the customer is always right. And if people are feeling like they're getting ripped off and they're not getting a good deal and suddenly the small, you know, I, I could see some of these smaller chains taking this as an opportunity to to eat into some of that market share. You know, yeah, if, possibly. If, yep. if if you've got them all listed, all the major retailers listed, and we're talking to some of these independents as well, some of these IGAs and things listed in your area, and you're looking at it going, well, hang on, you know, yes, Coles and Woolies send leaflets to my house so I can see what they've got on special, but some of these smaller ones don't necessarily have that sort of budget. Suddenly, I realized that milk and butter are way cheaper at the the shop around the corner mm. that, that I always assumed was more expensive because it's more convenient. Then maybe we'll start to see a natural market progression to, to, you know, these smaller companies starting to eat up their market share. I don't know, but I think it's, I think that's probably one of the less invasive steps before you go marching going, yeah, we're going to break up Coles and Woolies. Um, every state's going to be divided up into different, you know, I think there is definitely some business benefits. Again, going back to supply chain and logistics and things like that of having a national supermarket chain on a national level that you can serve most Australians. So I think there's definitely a consumer benefit in that way. However, there's also a monopoly or, in this case, a duopoly prob- problem that I think is probably better solved with transparency and regulation. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's move on to our two ticks town talk. I've been so, two weeks ago, I did a really, really long two ticks town talk. <laughs> so, so this week... Um, oh, and also that took me like hours to put together. So this week I thought I'd keep <laughs> keep it really short and sweet and uh, make my job a lot easier. So this week we're going to go back to Western Australia uh, to a small island, to be specific, to a little island called Middle Island. That is the largest of the Roche Islands, and it is about 11 kilometers off the coast of the Cape Arid National Park. I am breaking our rules here a little bit um, because oh. Middle Island is actually uninhabited. <laughs> so uh, there, okay, yeah. there is no town here, but it is a tourist. There is a tourist destination here and something really unique uh, uh, for the area. It's called Lake Hillier. Uh, and Lake Hillier is about 600 meters in length, which is about 2,000 feet. And it's about 250 or 820 feet, 250 meters, 820 feet wide. Uh, so it's a, a, a big rectangle, basically. Uh, the lake <laughs> is surrounded by a rim of sand and dense woodland and paperbark eucalyptus trees. And the lake is right on the coast of the island. It's only about 70 meters or 230 feet from the rolling swell of the ocean, separated only by a small group of sand dunes. Uh, And because of this, you actually can't really see the lake from the ocean if you were to sail past the island, which is kind of cool. Deep. 
without knowing, or maybe you do, do you want to, can you guess what is so special about Lake Hillier? Um, does it have some sort of like rare crustacean in it? Not really. Um, I'm going to send you a picture and we'll put this in the show notes as well. Let me have a look at your picture. Oh, okay. okay. Right. So, in other words, you can send me the picture with the answer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I don't think – I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> so, it's pink, like bubblegum pink. pink. It's, it is bubblegum pink. You're right. Good description. It's really vibrant in its colour. And this this is actually a permanent colour. Uh, and the water oh. – does not change color even when you take it into a container. It's still pink. Um, wow. And which is absolutely wild. And the color is believed to be from the presence of, a, of a, an organism. And I'm probably going to butcher some of these uh, names because there is a, there is a oh. number, <laughs> there's a number of uh, uh, sort of a microbiome that's going on in this lake that makes it quite unique um but the major organism they believe is from uh dunelia selena uh and there's another look there are a, a number of pink lakes in australia and around the world uh but lake hillia has been remarkably stable we're Many of the other pink lakes change over time, and sometimes they'll have a sort of like a, an algae bloom that makes yeah. them pink, and and then they'll sort of go back to being you know the standard quote unquote standard watercolors of sort of green or, or, or a brackish brown or something like that. Um, however, Lake Hillier basically is always pink. So a little bit of history: Lake Hillier was first visited by. As far as we know, the Aboriginal people of the area very likely had a presence in this area, but we don't think there was a permanent sort of settlement around this area. Uh, and as far as we're aware, the first recorded visit was by Matthew Flinders, an expedition on the 15th of January, 1802. And Flinders' journal entries are considered to be the first, as I said, first written records of the lake. He observed the Pink Lake after ascending the island's highest peak, which he named after himself. <laughs> he's, he's probably probably that bloody sick of naming things after after sponsors and governors and everybody else. He thought, "I'll stuff it. I'll give myself a lookout over a pink lake." <laughs> he writes, uh, and I quote. In the northeastern part was a small lake of rose colour, the water of which, as I was informed by Mr. Thistle, who visited it, was so saturated with salt that insufficient quantity, oh, sorry, that sufficient quantities were crystallised near the shore to load onto a ship. The specimens he brought aboard was of a good quality and required no other process than to be dried, fit for use. Ha. Huh. So they were pretty happy because, of course, back then salt was used a lot for curing of meat and, and preserving things. So yeah. um, salt was quite a precious commodity. Um, 
and because of that, the salt, the lake was actually subject to salt mining in the late 19th century. Uh, but the mining enterprise reported to fail for a number of reasons, but mostly because the toxicity of the salt collected for consumption. So I toxicity. do think. Yeah, so I do think whilst uh, Flinders' crew, Mr. Thistle, collected some quality uh, crystalline salt, uh, when you're sort of, you know, he, he probably picked through the best bits. And when you're trying to mine it at an industrial scale, you probably don't have the chance to, you know, you get a bit of the algae sort of mixed in and oh. it's not necessarily good. Uh, but I'm glad that the mining stopped because this environment is is basically pristine as a result. In 2016, scientists from the Extreme Microbiome Project conducted extensive microbiome and metagenomic DNA sequencing and detected. Now I'm going to butcher some of these, so huh. if you are if you are a, a, a microbiologist, <laughs> I apologize. Um, but they de 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 detected Haloquandritum, Haloferex, Selenia bacter, Haliobacterium, Haliogeometrisum, and other Haliophilic organisms. Uh, culturing from the water revealed low concentration of psychophallus as well, whatever that means. And the lake is still under ongoing research by the Extreme Microbiome Project, part of the Association of Biomolecular Resource Facilities and the Metogenomic Research Group. So it is world famous in the microbiology world. And despite its high yeah. salt contents, which it's it's roughly as salty as the Dead Sea, uh, Lake Hillier oh. is safe to swim in. And because it's so salty, ah. you'll float like at the top of the water. Like, you'll look like you're on a lilo, even if you're just floating around. It's... Um, In the pink. Yeah. However, it is not advisable, actually, or allowed, without previous written approval by the Western Australian Department of Environmental Conservation. And as, re as recently as 2012, Lake Hillio had been located within the boundaries uh, of a nature reserve, and since 2002, the lake itself has been considered a wetland of sub-regional significance. So, if you want to go and see it, other than the photo that we post up onto the show notes, and I would recommend you have a look because it does look pretty, pretty awesome. Because it's so close to the sea, you get this stark contrast between the beautiful uh, blue water and then the pink lake right next to it. Uh, but if you do want to go and see it, there are only a few ways to reach Lake Hillier. Uh, the most popular and probably easiest is going to be a scenic flight. Uh, they do fly from Esperance Airport, flying over Lake Hillier via the Cape National Park, where you can actually see about two dozen other rainbow and pink colored lakes around the city of Esperance. However, they are uh, more temporary in nature. So, if you want to say a pink lake, go to this area because you're almost guaranteed because Lake Hillier will almost certainly be pink. I do believe it sort of uh, varies somewhat in how red it is or how pink it is, um, but it's pretty consistent. There is another 
uh, Pink Lake, just outside the city of Esperance, which is just called Pink Lake. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's not it's not pink anymore. How long will they workshop that for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, it's actually not pink anymore. Um, <laughs> and hasn't been since 2017 due to, uh, I think it was the rerouting of a local river uh, sort of changed the, the, the water makeup of, of Pink Lake. And as a result, it is no longer pink. Actually, it's, it's like a, like a, almost like a minty green color now. So unfortunately, so yeah, definitely uh, doesn't suit its name, but uh, Lake Hillier um, is definitely still pink. I'm amazed that you can take the, uh, the water out and it still looks pink. I don't know how long, uh, and I saw that claim written in a number of places, but do take that with a, a, a grain of salt because I'm not <laughs> certain. Apparently, before it, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how long it remains pink for. Um, that wasn't written anywhere, so I'm not. I, I really don't know if it's like a forever thing or if it's a you know you get a couple of good days out of it. I'm not. I'm not really sure. I, I would imagine as the bacteria dies, the the hue would um, start to sort of fade. But again, I actually don't know. It it sounds really cool though. So it, it does. So I wonder. I wonder if it's the um, actual like whether it's it's whether it's a, a, a like a, a pigment produced by the bacteria and. Um, other things, or whether it's the actual uh, bacteria and that itself that gives the pink, or, or is it a combination of both? I, I don't understand a whole lot of those things. I think it's a combination of both. The reading into it that I that I did is, is sort of that it's a combination of both. Some of the bacteria that are present produce sort of as a byproduct. I think it's to protect themselves from the sun. Uh, they produce basically a, like a red hue, um, oh, and I would imagine right. as they die, uh, they you know the the hue will sort of go away. However, some of the other bacteria that they found in the lake are red themselves, and I think that's where Lake Hillier is different from some of the other lakes around the area that sort of have these blooms and they turn pink and then they sort of change. Um, as the bloom sort of dies down, it, yeah. it's no longer as pink. Whereas, like Hillier does seem to have a bit more of a unique microbiome, um, which is pretty cool. It is pretty weird, which is why I selected it rather than some Ooh. of the other ones uh, that are closer to towns. Because of course, this is our two ticks town talk. But this week, it's a two ticks lake talk. <laughs> I think that's permissible because it was interesting. That's <laughs> definitely interesting. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Australia is going to commence domestic missile manufacturing. The guided multiple launch rocket systems are scheduled to commence domestic production from 2025. As part of the contract between Defence and Lockheed Martin Australia, uh, that was announced last week, Valued at an estimated $37.4 million, the agreement will see the prime contractor transfer technical data to Australia to build a domestic workforce and establish production processes ahead of manufacturing an initial batch of guided missile 
Gullet got blah, 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 blah. Guided multiple <laughs> launch rocket systems, also called HIMARS, uh, and the launch pod containers. So the Defence Minister for Defence Industry, Pat Conroy, also reaffirmed the government's commitment to procuring precision strike missiles when announcing the agreement with Lockheed Martin Australia. Australia has been a member of the Precision Strike Missile Program since 2021 and will enable defence to engage targets out to 500 kilometres. The Precision Strike Missile Program is a collaboration between the Australian Defence Force and the US Armed Forces aimed at developing a new precision missile capability. The recent contract will help Australia develop its missile, its domestic guided weapons and ordnance manufacturing capability as prioritised in the st- Defence Strategic Review. Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Defence Richard Miles said the signing of this contract with Lockheed Martin Australia to begin the manufacturing of GM. LRS in Australia from 2025 is another example of the Albanese government delivering key outcomes of the Defence Strategic Review. A total of $4.1 billion has been committed to long-range strike systems, including the acquisition and manufacturing over forward estimates. The government Uh, The development of Australia's domestic missile manufacturing capability has been delivered in close collaboration with our United States partners. The Minister of Defence, Pat Conroy, went on to say, and I quote, This work is a clear demonstration of the ongoing collaboration between Australia and the United States on Australia's guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, a key outcome of the Australia-United States ministerial consultations in July 2023. Hmm. Adit, I know you're going to have a lot to say about this, so <laughs> let's kick it off. Yeah, look, this, this is a quandary for for me. You, you know, I'm I'm anti-war when it comes to wars of aggression. However, in terms of self-defence, as as applied to country, I I do see it a bit uh, differently. I'm you know, I can see the benefit in a strong uh, defence force. However, I can't quite get by my complete mistrust of the military industrial complex and putting in uh, Lockheed, putting Australia into Lockheed Australia doesn't really uh, doesn't really change the deal much for for me. I, I you, yeah, we, we you know we discuss ahead of time what we're going to be talking about, and I really was struggling to weigh up the pros and and cons of this. Getting a high-tech manufacturing industry started in Australia, though, with potential flow-on effects, and some of those flow-on effects can also be be peaceful, that was an appealing notion for me. I mean, I don't don't harbour any illusions about who would be really owning and controlling it um, but you know that doesn't really mean we can't use it as a stepping stone to include more peaceful byproducts. Look, if this was, uh, I swear, let's say if this was put down to a referendum plebiscite one and wasn't worded in some ridiculous way, but was basically a yes or no, I'm probably going to come down in 
favour of this, but I just have so many flags go up on something like this because I simply don't, I don't trust the, uh, I, I simply don't trust the players with this. I've seen, uh, yeah, and it's not just it's not just the US, um, but given the size of their uh, their, their military and the the comp the the industry over there they're sort of the one that gets gets turned to unfortunately there's an incentive that if you're producing hammers you got to use the hammers in order to to sell more and i know that sounds a bit simplistic in some ways and i can accept that however you know if your product's not getting used then uh yeah, you're not going to be selling more product. And that's what bothers me at the core of, of this. Okay, if Australia does have a domestic missile manufacturing um, capability, how is it going to be, be deployed? If it's being deployed in a defensive sense for the nation, then I can understand that argument. If it's just another outlet to produce missiles for what I consider wars of aggression, then I have a huge problem with it. But I, look, I I struggle with the supermarkets one being um, as, as an issue, and I'm struggling with where I come down on this one. Uh, I, I I don't know. What, what what do you reckon? You made a good yeah. You've made a good argument. Um... So just just so we're clear, we're purchasing uh, the guided multiple launch rocket system, which is uh, also called HIMARS. We're purchasing this from uh, or the the high mobility artillery rocket system HIMARS. Uh, we're purchasing this from the United States, uh, and of course, you got to feed this thing full of missiles for it to work obviously HIMARS has become quite famous in Ukraine it's basically a truck with a rocket pod strapped to the back of them uh and it's really the 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 reason this system is so effective is is actually the missiles themselves um mm. and it, this isn't a surprise to me because when they talked about the purchasing of HIMARS systems in 2021. Uh, and the, the, this is a capability Australia has always sort of lacked. Uh, we have good artillery, but we don't have any rocket artillery. And there is a big benefit with rocket artillery in that it can be set up and fired very, very quickly and then moved. Um, and because when you're shooting with artillery, other artillery emplacements will see where you are and they'll shoot back and obviously that's bad um huh. so that you know the the <laughs> you don't want your artillery to get blown up for obvious reasons so the 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 quicker you can shoot and scoot as we call it uh the better in in theory and it's, uh, also, it's also true to say that artillery uh can't be guided or is that not correct I would say that is true with exception of one round that is guided and it costs a stupid amount of money and it's I don't believe it's currently in active service with any military or maybe the US has a small spot stockpile. Um, but generally, no. Uh, uh, you know, artillery is generally big guns, 
use ballistic trajectories, you know, shoot up in the air, it comes down, hopefully where you aim it. Um, with HIMARS and with missiles, you do have a degree of precision or, or more precision, I should say, than mm. traditional artillery for that reason, because the missile itself can actually use aerodynamic forces and steer itself and, and move to a guided target. Um or not, or it can be like just a regular rocket that goes on a ballistic trajectory. And that's the flexibility with having a system like this. And so I did mention the Precision Strike Missile Program. Uh, this is to replace the somewhat obsolete uh, uh, missile called Attackums. Uh, that what, the US. That we, that we, oh, sorry, go on. No, we currently don't have it. It's called the the ACTACMS, the Army Tactical Missile System. Uh, that the US. So this is a missile. It, it shoots one instead of uh, the HIMARS can use obviously multiple. Hence why it's called a multiple launch rocket system. Uh, it generally shoots up to, to six rockets at a time, um, up to a range of about 150 kilometers. So it is. Quite significant. Uh, Attackums, though, it's a much larger missile and it shoots one, and that can go about 300 to 350, I think, kilometers, something like that. Um, the new missile to replace this, the precision, uh, what did I call it? The precision strike missile is going to fly about 500 kilometers. Uh, and I believe they want the HIMARS system to be able to carry two of them. So it's smaller, lighter, it's better in every way. That's the idea. Uh, currently doesn't exist, so we'll see. We'll oh. see how it, how it works out. But the fact that we, we're the only other partner for this. So oh, okay. it's, it's only the Australian Defence Force and the US Armed Forces at this point. I think the UK has been sort of nibbling around the edges uh, to, to get this capability as well and to join the program. And I think... It's kind of good that Australia, that we are in bed with the, with the US military because they are our biggest defense partner. We have very strong defense ties, but I definitely get your concerns about the military industrial com complex here in Australia. If we're building missiles, so this is currently a problem that we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine got a bunch of HIMARS uh, from the US and they've been firing off rockets like like crazy as they would. They want to use them because it's a capability oh. they previously didn't have. And you've probably, a lot of our listeners, if you've been on the internet, have probably seen some very successful uh, HIMARS strikes on Russian targets. So it is a very effective system. However, those missiles aren't cheap, and there's not a huge stockpile of them. Um, obviously, the US is sitting on quite a lot, but you know you want to, You don't want to empty your stocks of uh, rockets to send to Ukraine because you need them for your own defense. And I think that's where our government and probably the US has gone. We don't have a capability to supply you with rockets for these. You need to do it yourself. You need to take up some of the slack. And I feel like that's probably where this has come from. And I think the Albanese government has probably quite smartly gone, yeah, that's fair. Um, and we're going to have this capability here. But like you said, once you start manufacturing something, it's very rare that you're just going to 
stop manufacturing. Oh, you know, we've got enough now, boys. Shut it all down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these 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 rockets, these missiles do have a shelf life, um, and yeah, exactly, yeah, that stockpile thing does bother me quite a lot. Now, as you said, they do have a, they do have a bit of a use by a use by date, um, but you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing at the the moment is it just seems to there just seems to be this. Uh, desire at the, the moment to to use this stuff up and what we've seen with the the shortages in ukraine i can't help but be a little bit suspicious that we are part of somebody else's plan i get look i i can understand the thing of okay we're buying the um the, the high mars from the us so it's great to be able to produce our own mo but they're just listening to this article and listening to the uh, things that are public, let alone what's going on behind the scenes. I can't help but think we're being sold something without being given the full story behind, which is why I have the problems and the quandary with this, because I just don't trust the players. And that's my biggest my biggest problem with this. If it was if it was all uh open and um, back to the transparency again, as transparent as something um, of a military bent could be, maybe I'd have a bit of a, a different uh, opinion. But because of how these things work, I just think, well, let's see how it goes, but I'm just not going to be – I can't be fully behind this, but I don't know that I'd necessarily oppose the idea. I also think it's worth mentioning that I feel like the new the new precision strike missile program, which was going to have a, a range of about 500 kilometers, is great. It's very capable uh, platform. As we've seen, it's been combat proven uh, in Ukraine, in Afghanistan and Iraq. I believe it was used over there as well to great effect. So this is a platform that works really, really well. Also, it's a platform that's actually generally not that expensive because it, it basically is a, a rocket pod slapped to the back of a truck. Um, yep. So trucks are good. Trucks are easy to maintain and everything like that. So this can keep it within our inventory for a long time. I think this is a good capability for Australia to have. My biggest gripe is that 500 kilometer range sounds really far on paper. <laughs> Um, so I went there because I think you're going to say exactly my concern. But it's not like on the grand strategic value to Australia, um, it's not that far when we no. consider, you know, we. I feel like we have a capability gap for long-range strike capability that's significantly longer than 500 k's this definitely fills a hole in the inventory so uh, uh, for that reason i think it's good from our defense capability however you know we, we do have we spoke about them the other day the the cocos keeling islands um obviously we've got uh uh norfolk island lord howe island just as an example of of far-flung places um 500 k's doesn't get from Exmouth uh, or, or Western Australia or Port Hedland, just in general, uh, to the Cocos Keeling Islands, as an example. So we couldn't have something sitting out there 
you know, at the Harold E. Holt uh, uh, yep. Naval Communications Station. We couldn't have something sitting there to protect, say, like the Cocos Keeling Islands. It doesn't have that range. Um, it, it, 500Ks isn't nothing, but I do feel like if we could develop uh, a a better system a longer range system i think this capability could be a lot longer and i'm not saying that's not out, out of the realm of possibility i'm not a weapons designer i have no idea um but i would like to see something like that maybe be developed in the future to really give this capability longevity you know the, the americans love to replace their equipment reasonably quickly um i think HIMARS was created uh, only only a few years ago, but it's been on in on paper for since the nineties, I think. Um, but we like to sit on equipment for decades and decades and <laughs> decades um, because you know we we have a sensible defense budget uh, for our population and size and things like that. But uh, look, I, I'm not saying this is bad because I don't think it is, but I do think there are some valid concerns around the military industrial complex in Australia and what that looks like in the future, not now, but in 10, 15 years. Um, And what is the long-term, like the longevity of a system like this and does it really fulfill the need for the gaps that we have? Or are we going to be talking about in 12 months' time some new capability that we're going to be getting to to fill that other gap? I don't know. But I think... Look, look, I'm sorry, finish that point because... I think it's a step in the right direction, but I don't think it's a be-all and end-all. It's not a, it's not a silver bullet, as we say. Hmm. Step. Okay. That's all right. That's that's slight. That's slightly <laughs> a step too far. <laughs> no, no, no. Step in the no step in the right direction. I, that sort of that possibly um, uh, that possibly changed. I, I exclaimed so excitedly when you talked about that because that was the thing that that bugged me. I looked at this and. I looked at that 500-kilometre range and I thought in terms of Australia, I think I, I, could, I couldn't even hit bloody Adelaide from here in Melbourne. You know, I mean, there's just it, – it's 500 – look, and I understand tactically if you're, if, if you're in a, a, you know, a war and they've got, you know, 100 k's between fronts or, you know, the front either side, the, they've got it here – but you hit the reason I got excited. You hit the nail on the head for me. Is how does this help us in the defence of Australia? And I couldn't see that. All I could see was we just becoming another manufacturing a base for exporting this to an overseas, um, an overseas war, another, you know, another Ukraine, another Afghanistan, another. Vietnam, you keep going, you keep going back. That you, you, you just nailed it on what bothered me. I didn't see, and look, you got you got more of a military head on you, so I'm probably missing, possibly missing something very obvious. But I'm thinking, how does this really help us in the defence of Australia? And that's what bothers me. The one good thing about this capability, specifically the HIMARS system, compared to some others, is that. In theory, you can strap them to the deck of a ship to augment that ship's capability for oh. long-range missile bombing. So it is fairly flexible. Also, it's uh, transportable because it is, like I said, it's a truck. So you can strap it onto uh, 
transport aircraft reasonably easily. Uh, multiple transport aircraft that we already have an inventory can carry this thing and stuff like that. So, so I don't sorry, you think- can fly you can fly that from an aircraft. Did I miss no, you? So there? you can you can put the 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 truck in the back of an aircraft oh, and right, fly right, it somewhere. Yeah. 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 It's not like a white elephant, like it's not some super weapon that's, you know, really it's it's impossible logistically to deal with and everything like that. It is quite a sensible decision. But there are definitely some valid concerns around, like I said, the military industrial complex and what that means for Australia and what that means to the average taxpayer. And you're right, there's also a concern about, you know, there's a lot of other com- countries that are currently in the process of acquiring HIMARS like us. And they're not developing their own missile manufacturing base. So um, it, it does kind of feel like we're, we're getting a good deal, but mm. that deal came with conditions for manufacturing because, you know, our biggest ally doesn't necessarily want... They look at us and go, hey, maybe you should pull some more of your weight, which probably is a bit fair but I can mm. see where people don't necessarily like that. Uh, I, oh, all right, look, that uh, I've got to say that rounds out a few of the sharp edges on my opinion. I can I can see what you when – you, when you say it can go on ships, when you talk about that um, you know, easy transportability via air and the, um, the pulling the weight on that side, yeah, okay, I can, I can buy a bit of that. It will also, for our listeners that are probably going, you know, we're going to get invaded by China or something like that, just so you understand, if this was, if we had HIMARS systems based in Darwin, which is almost certainly a possible, like, going to happen, uh, as those ships came past East Timor, they would be in range of, of HIMARS and we could strike them from that from that distance away. So, oh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, so 500Ks isn't, huge but like i said it's not nothing my concern is is for some of more of the far-flung regions of australia like the cocos keeling islands uh like norfolk island like lord howe island those bloody kiwis you know they might get get a bit huffy (laughs) um and there's not enough of these systems to be putting them in these locations you know we're only looking at purchasing 20 of them so you're not going to have one based in the Coca Killing Islands full time, right? Because there's nothing strategically valuable about them necessarily. Economically and culturally, yes, but not not enough to to pace, you know, put put a HIMAR system on those islands full time. Uh, that's a bit paranoid. But to say have them based just outside of Darwin in our major military bases in that area, yeah. Putting one near the, the Harold Holt friggin' Uh, what do we call it? The Harold E. Holt Naval Harold Communications e. Station. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad place to put him, you know. So strategically, I think it's a good it's a good capability upgrade. But like I said, there's definitely some concerns. And you're right. The reality is these systems probably aren't going to be used in the defense of Australia. They're probably going to be used in a in a foreign war. Whether you want to call that a war of aggression or perhaps it's it's we're strapping them onto ships. And launching them over Taiwan and into China. I don't know. I don't know what this looks like, but uh, well, though you made that they made that comment about the being being transportable. I I would suggest that maybe we put one in uh, 
Grampians National Park down here in Victoria because by my calculations on Google Maps, that puts Adelaide in range. <laughs> yeah. South Australia can finally get what's coming to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Taking away our <laughs> cultural advancements. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of taking away cultural advancements, tell me what happened this week in Australian history. I come from an unknown All right, this week in Australian history, we're covering the 16th to the 23rd of January. So January 16th, 1796, Australia's first theatre opens in Sydney. Uh, 1998, there was a jump because there was a whole lot of so-and-so politician died on this thing. And um, so, yeah, 1796 to 1998 is a jump, but... (laughs) Yeah, I wonder, sorry, do you know what the first production was I, in the first theatre? I, I looked it up. In fact, that was the first because I thought, oh, great, I'll get something here. Couldn't find it. And then there was also uh, some things about there was something like, I think it was the Theatre Royale um, or Theatre Royal, I can't remember if it was with or without an E, uh, which was in 18, oh, you know, something like 1813 or something like that. So I couldn't get much detail on this one. Uh, it probably wasn't sort of like uh, the first theatre opens versus the thir- first theatre built. So, yeah, oh, look, I, I had the same question. Would have loved to have been able to tell you that it was, you know, whatever, but no. Mm. Unfortunately, so look, if any of our listeners know, uh, contact us on the Australian subreddit when we, we post this or send us the um, send us an email at the, uh, what are we, Australian subreddit at proton.me. Yep. Um, January 16th, 1998, the first victim of the Melbourne gangland killings, Alphonse Gengitano, is murdered in his Templestone home. Now, the Melbourne gangland killings, the murders of 36 underworld figures in Melbourne, Victoria. That happened between uh, 1988 and 2010. They were mainly retributive in killing, retributive killings involving underworld groups. Uh, apparently caused, a pa- apparently, it caused a power vacuum in the Melbourne's criminal community. Rival factions fought. Uh, you know, to control everything. A whole of the murders remained unsolved, though there was one bloke, Carl Williams, uh, that detectives from the Purana Task Force, they were the mob that was set up to look at the Melbourne gangland killings, reckon that Carl Williams was responsible for at least 10 of them. Um, the end of that, that period, Williams was arrested, he was pleaded guilty to to three murders in 2007 um and they took his confession and it seems like his source the ultimate source of violence where 36 people well are underworld underworld figures how are those still people um died was that Carl Williams had met on his 29th birthday with a bloke called Jason Moran and his half-brother Mark Moran at a suburban park. Jason Moran shot Carl Williams in the stomach 
over just gotten a quibble about money uh, relating to the amphetamine trade. And through that period and after his run-in with the Moran family, Williams basically started a war with them. So once he started the war, um, he was wanting to kill all the members of the Carlton crew, who was the uh-huh. – uh, yeah. So basically, you know, he um, understandably got pissed off over being shot in the guts uh, but decided that he was going to wreak retribution. As, as these type of people are do, they're not forgiving and saying, let's call it a draw. So no. – yeah, like the whole Melbourne gangland killings were a um, well a big, big episode. As you can imagine, thirty six people dying between ninety eight and two thousand and ten. It was um, an interesting time to be down here in Melbourne. January seventeenth, nineteen twenty two, the first Archibald Prize for portraiture is won by William McInnes. In nineteen forty four, meat rationing began in Australia. Uh, 1970, Cyclone Ada hits central Queensland, killing 14 people. And 1972, a tent embassy is set up in Canberra outside Parliament House protesting land rights. Still there to this day. I mean, that's 1972 and the, um, it's got a couple more permanent structures, but, uh, it's at the, then... it's outside the old Parliament House now though, isn't it? It oh, hasn't sorry, moved. Sorry. Yeah. Cool. Yes, look, that's yeah. uh, an important qualification outside the old Parliament House, yeah. Which, I don't know. I'm sorry. Like, I get, you know, Aboriginal rights to the land movement. I get why they're protesting, but it does seem a bit a bit out of place being that it's no longer Government House. You would have thought they would have moved it, but... True. Look, I, I mean, it's still going to be on Government property. I mean, so much of bloody Canberra yeah. is... Um, but you, you could also um, posit the argument that uh, it's an established embassy, and around Canberra, there's many other embassies that aren't actually on the floor, or aren't actually on the grounds True. of Parliament House. So, True. Yeah. I guess I'm looking at it more as a protest than as a legitimate entity in that way, yeah. as as an embassy. So, yeah, no, you, that's a good point. Yeah. January 18th on 1788, HMS Supply of the First Fleet arrived in Botany Bay. 1878, construction of the Garn Railway Line starts in Port Augusta, South Australia. Uh, Regular listeners will recognise the Garn or the Gan um, from several Tutix Town Talks and uh, several of this week's Australian histories. It's a major railway line. 1934, Qantas and Imperial Airways join forces and establish Qantas Empire Airways. That's cool. That sounds yeah. like, yeah, that's got a good ring to it. Sounds real powerful. It does. It does. But, yeah, not now. Uh, 1977, a train derailment and bridge collapse kills 83 in the Granville Ray- Railway disaster. Uh, 2003, the Canberra bushfires reached the city, killing four people and destroying in excess of 400 houses. Now, my brother was in Canberra at that time, and I can't remember whether he was directly told this story or was told it by a firefighter or a local. 
but there was one bloke in um, a, a suburb that was uh, you know, hit by the, the fires who was like he was sort of the neighbourhood um, like you know slightly slightly weird bloke and that but it turned out that he was one of those people who was particularly prepared and when the the fires came out he had a uh, like a a heat uh, reflective suit so similar to oh, yeah. what a lot of the fireys have so that yep. he could he could he could um, endure a lot of the heat had pumps set up for his um uh, connected to his his um, swimming pool that were the correct ones for what to do for that heat, which I think is I think you have to have a diesel one. I can't remember what it was, but it'd be something like that. And because of his preparation, saved his house and several of his neighbours' houses. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, and it always it always just stuck in my head that one that was so like, oh look at this guy doing you know these funny things and funny thoughts. Push came to shove. Uh, he was out there too. Yeah, all well, those funny thoughts paid off. So, yeah, good on him. Uh, January 19th, 1907, a tropical cyclone hits Cooktown, Queensland, killing six. 1975, two Double J, the predecessor of Youth Pro Radio Triple J, commences broadcasting in Sydney. And I'm old enough to remember Double J. In fact, I had a mm. I had a bright pink double J T shirt, which I think went to Vinnie's long ago. Um, ah, probably yeah. worth a fortune these days. Well, yeah. Look, if I if I hadn't um, hadn't polluted with my with my adolescent uh, bloody high stinky body um and lack of care for material probably would have but uh no i think by the time i got rid of it no one would have taken it <laughs> 2006 uh former leader of the australian labor party mark latham is charged with common assault malicious damage and stealing from a person after an altercation with a news limited reporter January 20th, 1880, Andrew George Scott, known as Bushranger Captain Moonlight, was hanged in Sydney. Now, he was caught, there's a few, like there was a, as there is with a lot of these um, Bushrangers, there's a, a fairly long story about him. But basically, it was a, gave the Bushranging a bit of a go. He was caught a few times, served a couple of um jail sentences, then became a public speaker. And part of his public speaking was talking about um, some of the issues with, with jails or, or gales, um, G-A-O-L-S, as you know, we sort of correctly over here, but we tend to just default to jails now. Um, the crimes that were going, when crimes were going on while he was a public speaker, People suspected him. They said, oh, you know, bloody, that must be Captain Moonlight again. I don't know whether it got in his head, whether he got sick of it, but uh, he decided to change again from his, to uh, leave his public speaking career, formed another gang, targeted the Mansfield, Victoria area, and was eventually caught and hanged. But it was, it was sort of like he did his stuff, got on the public thing, and everyone said, oh, well, you're, yeah, you're a bastard anyway, so you must be guilty. And he's, it was almost like he said, oh, bugger, 
I'll make another gang and do it better this time. <laughs> so, yeah. 2003, death of John Halfpenny, age 68, a trade union leader, well-known for people in the trade union um, uh, sector. January 21 in 1887, Brisbane receives a daily rainfall of 465 millimetres. That's 18.3 inches, and that was a record for any Australian capital city. That's a lot of bloody rain. I've been in a rain bomb, as we call them, uh, where that amount of rain has dropped in about 30 minutes, and it was really scary. Wow. We had, like, flash flooding all around us. Um, it was full on. So I had never, ever witnessed it before, uh, but I'd always heard stories about how these, uh, well, we call them dams, but they're, they're really little lakes, uh, in yeah. uh, a, a full of fish, uh, and like, and people didn't put them there. Uh, and and we'd always heard stories that when when these events happen, the uh, the fish swim up the floodwaters and yeah. go from from dam to dam. And I was like, uh, you know, you sort of hear this and go, oh, that sort of makes sense. How else is it happening? But I have photographs of fish swimming in about three, four inches of water and then subsequently several feet of water across the road uh, swimming upstream into these isolated little pockets and I couldn't believe it. So, um, yep, yeah, it was a very crazy day. Well, 100% believe you I, because of other things that I have heard from people who are equally as, you know, reliable as you. So, yeah. Very interesting. 1918, the Mackay Cyclone. Got this <laughs> bit of a January 21st. Bit of, oh, what do we got? 23rd. Oh, you've just missed out. Whew, missed Dodged a bullet this year. Uh, 1918, the Mackay Cyclone uh, struck Mackay in Queensland, obviously, causing serious damage and killing 30 people. 1931, Isaac Isaacs becomes the first Australian-born Governor-General of Australia. 1941, in World War II, Australian and British forces attack Tobruk in Libya. January 22nd, 1899, leaders of six Australian colonies meet in Melbourne to discuss Confederation. Uh, Wasn't that long after, as we know, two years, and it happened. 1920, the Australian Country Party is formed at a meeting of farmers in Melbourne. Uh, 1941, Tobruk surrenders to the Australian 6th Division. 1943, HMAS Patricia Cam is sunk by Japanese aircraft near the Wessel Islands. January 23rd, this is our last day, 1796. The distilling of spirits is prohibited. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, and that stuck. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Lasts last about at all six, maybe seven minutes. Nineteen forty-three in World War Two, Australian and American forces finally defeat the Japanese army in Papua. This turning point in the Pacific War marks the beginning of the end of Japanese aggression. 
And finally, in 1946, the De Havilland Australia, 1946, De Havilland Australia conducts the first flight of its three-engined DHA-3 Drover Transport Aircraft at Bankstown Airport. That rounds out this week in Australian history, and I'm sure the people at De Havilland Australia thought, we've got the aircraft off the ground, now it's time for a quiz and a beer. All right, we've got two questions again. I reckon that you're going to get one easily, given your background. That's putting the pressure on, because if you don't, I'll understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because I wouldn't have known it. (laughs) (laughs) But we've got sort of an aquatic theme this week. (laughs) Okay. Yes. All right. First off, and I love this one, what is a group of sharks called? And this oh. isn't the one that I reckon you'll get, by the way. No, oh, I've read this. I've read this somewhere, huh. pro- probably on the bottom of a 4X bottle top <laughs> lid. Um, oh, a group of sharks. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, this is going to kill me because you're going to say it and I'll be like, oh. Of course. A group of sharks. What's a group of sharks called? It's not like a... See, aquatic animals, when you have... um, When you have, like, groups of aquatic animals, they always have weird uh, names, you know. It's not like a flock or something. It's, no, it's, and I, I know school gets used sometimes for yeah, fish, school, but that's, that's, yeah. not, that's not it in this um, instance. Nah, or like, um, what do they call... Dolphins, a, a pod, a or pod. is that whales? Yeah. Whales, I maybe mean, it's both a pod of yeah. pod of dolphins, pod of whales. Yeah, not that one either. Shark. Oh, I don't know. It'll be called something. Oh. It's not what I would have expected, to be honest. Uh, it, it's, it, its name starts with SH in the same way it sharks with, starts with SH. If that's a, <laughs> it's a shark of sharks. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's probably a called like a shitload of sharks. <laughs> yeah, it'll be called like a stab of sharks or something like that. Nah, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. It's called a shiver. A shiver. Yeah, which I now I looked it up line to confirm. Not that I doubt that the the bottle top, but I do. Uh, shiver. Yeah, that does that set. doesn't that definitely no. doesn't sound real. If no, I was that's what I thought. Yeah, if I was out with someone, I, I've been shark diving a few times, and we've always called them. I don't know, just a a group of sharks. I don't know. We never. I don't think we've ever used the proper terminology. But if someone said to me, "It's a shiver of sharks over there," I'd be like. Really? <laughs> that's that's what you're coming yeah. up with? I'd be like, nah, you're full of shit. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I had a bit of doubt too. It can also be called a frenzy. Oh, hey, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, I didn't mind frenzy either, but yeah, shiver seemed to be the more um uh, the, the more popular one. So yeah, there you go. Shiver of sharks. Now this is the one that I reckon you're either going to know straight off or not going to guess. Where is the deepest spot in the Earth's oceans? 
and that is in the Mariana Trench. I think they call it, specifically they call it the Challenger Deep. That particular spot is called the Challenger Deep, but it's in the Mariana Trench. Yep. Absolutely not. I thought you I thought you might with your background, but yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. off the coast off the coast of Japan. Uh, oh, is it? Between the northern Mariana well, when I say off the coast, like <laughs> for like a couple of thousand kilometers away. There's sort of nothing out there, but um but yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, excellent. Well done. Thank you very much. And on that bombshell. Thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mama lover. See you later, DK. See ya.